hello everyone and welcome to the next episode of um things we find interesting um got a bit of an interesting topic for you today quite a topical topic um and we're going to talk about the uh, limited mobilization that's been occurring in the last week uh in across russia in relation to uh, the russian ukrainian war that's been going on since uh the early part of part of this year slightly more technical topic um definitely a, a, a more contentious topic um you know there's lots of different uh highly politicized um opinions out there and what this discussion is going to be is just a few of our thoughts from some wide um wide research we've been doing um we're, we're by no means experts on this subject but we've certainly got a, a real passing interest in it and, and and hopefully for people who are less informed on this topic this will be a really um informative um and explanative kind of um episode I will say that obviously slightly some slightly controversial topics that we're talking about today. So the views of um, uh, both me and Matt on this podcast are just our personal views and not not the views of any organisations which we represent. Um, so yeah, today it's going to be me, Andy, as usual, and we're joined today for the first time by Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello. It's great to be involved. Another example of a, a remote podcast. So hopefully the audio is um, reasonably decent. Um, but yeah, we're going to talk about a few things today. We'll talk about a little bit of the background to this announcement of limited mobilization and what might be some of the drivers of it. We can look at some of the effects and the issues that might be in, in, in place of it, in actually implementing it. And then we're going to see how that might actually affect um, perhaps the conflict um, in Ukraine. Um, Matt, how, how long have you been interested in this uh, in this topic for the, the conflict um, in, in, in the Ukraine? So I've followed it fairly extensively. Um, I, you know, I'm very much reporting on things that you'd pass as secondary and tertiary sources of information. Um, but that's quite useful because it saves me time in trying to verify and validate sources of primary information. Um, yeah, don't quote but, us in your dissertations. Like it's not, not, that, <laughs> not scientific enough. Yeah. Um, but you know, in particular lately, with the sudden changes that have happened in this campaign, it's a very much a new phase of the campaign that's beginning, and it's really interesting just how the pace has changed um, in the conflict. Yeah, and some—I mean, some of these concepts are, are crazy. You know, if you ask five years ago, are we really gen- generally going to be talking about conscription? You know, widespread conscription across a, a, a you know a leading nation of the world. Um, that it would feel like something back in the 1940s and probably that was the last time this was done at scale in Europe um, so it, it's certainly kind of um, it's unexpected times I think in, in, in the world of, of, of military science and geopolitics yeah I mean it's, it's a huge change to see something like this come in um, you know there's been a gradual slide to a slightly more oppressive regime uh, in Russia um, and that change is clearly having an effect. What's difficult to know is you see a lot of things about positive support for their campaign in Ukraine, but how much of that is through the oppression that the government's puts on the people and how much of that is actually the way people feel. And I think the protests we're now seeing relating to the mobilisation that's happened are a clear sign that actually there is a bit of fatigue for this war and perhaps the original statistics of internal support aren't quite as strong as they thought. Yeah, and maybe this is the kind of rubber meets, meets the road um, moment, or you could probably use some slightly more meat hits the grinder moment of uh, all the people who've been vicariously supporting the war in, in Ukraine and Russia. Well, now they're, now they're being asked to put sign on the dotted line and actually um, potentially put their lives at risk for it. Um, 
it's it's a real a real big big change and oh, and obviously the the russians were cognizant of this because they really made a big point it was one of the key messages when they first conducted what they called the special military operation is this will not be there will be no conscripts um and and sorry to, to get the, the terminology right for our listeners who are less familiar um russia's got a sort of uh Let's call it uh, simplified to maybe a, a three-tier system of it, its military. It's got the professional soldiers, who are people who are career soldiers. You know, um, uh, yeah, are going to get are going to spend twenty plus years in 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 the military. Tend to be in really specialist roles or some of their most elite units. Um, and then they've got the conscript force, which is people, which is essentially Russian young men between certain ages are obliged to serve in the military for I think it's only a year. Um, get some basic yeah. military training, some basic military induction. Those are what they call the conscripts. And then you've got what's called the reserves, which is a, actually a much larger force, which is essentially everybody who's done the conscript service in the past. So really, it's it, it's it's a lot of people. Um, uh, and then there's various other kind of mercenary groups, which we'll, we'll come on to in, in a bit. But just for that clarity. And then the, in terms of the, the actual term of, um, I think uh, the Russians, uh, Putin has, has, has termed it limited mobilization versus essentially general mobilization um i think that that that's that's an interesting one there as i understand it matt limited mobilization he's essentially saying um it is only people who have had past military training whereas general mobilization would be could be any any civilian um but i think the interesting part for russia there is their their limited mobilization pool is, is is massive yeah, so, so if, they, um, if they went for their full mobilization, supposedly there's about 25 million former serving people in the country that could be pulled in service, as well as those that sit, with, sit within the age categories, which interestingly, the government in the Duma recently expanded to raise the age limit so more people could be drawn in. Now, they made a very big point um, in the defence minister's speech that followed Putin that only 1% of that 25 million, 300,000 is the limit of this initial mobilization. And it would focus purely on those who have already done service. And I would exclude groups like students and carers. Um, now, looking into that and the reality of what's happening, there's been a lot of well-read sources that are suggesting that what's actually happening is they're drawing in all kinds of people. These rules are already ignored. And there's also, uh, I saw a the text somewhere that stated that actually there's a second part to this law that wasn't released publicly that actually allowed for a much wider conscription if they needed yeah, the, the, the law had a redacted section um which i believe was the figure of how many now there's three hundred thousand, which i've seen in lots of places apparently has sort of just been people have estimated that but actually i think they redacted the number of exactly how many they they would perhaps maybe they said in interviews it was three hundred thousand. Um, but yeah, that, and that's a really interesting point, which we'll, we'll, we'll probably come on to later. But hey, let's go into it now. Is it's not like you just press a button and three hundred thousand young men fit for war just turn up at your door, ready to go. You know, the next day, the act of mobilisation um, and mustering a force like that is is really hard. And even at that level of how how on earth do you identify these people? How do you know that somebody's not lying and saying that they're a student when they are, you know, or a carer when they're not? They're not and God, what 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 a massive undertaking just to just to do that, like from from a practical sense. Especially when you've also already had a huge amount of people emigrating from your country to avoid the oppressive system, to avoid the sanctions that have been put on, and now with the announcement of this, you know, I'm sure you've seen on the news like I have, 
some of the huge queues that suddenly started appearing at any border country that doesn't need a visa, anywhere that can get flights are sold out. So, you know, that's going to add an, an added challenge that they're going to go to try and recruit people that should be there and just may not be. Um, so so there's a position now of them just throwing people on buses almost, you know, and you kind of think, is it, does it get to that eventually? Yeah, and, and I think that's why a lot of the kind of uh, the challenges have been raised by Western media about the likelihood of them achieving 300,000, you know, which is a huge number. Um, even before you start thinking about training these people and arming them, you know, to just collate 300,000 people is is a huge step. That's actually, you know, it's, it's 150% of the original force that invaded with. It's a massive number. Yeah, massive. And we'll, I think we'll... Um... We'll, we'll come on to that later the difficulties of how you know what what is in place and how do the russians approached it certainly in the past of, of of creating those numbers but i think it's interesting for us to first look um why is this happening you know clearly the russians think they, they are essentially signaling or at least overtly they're saying we need we need more manpower um but why do they need more manpower you know uh why is it evolved from this special military operations of, of purely professional soldiers and i think it's useful to to look back into what's happened in the conflict so far that's maybe driven this number um because i don't think it's quite just as simplistic as it's because of casualties um yeah yeah i mean well it comes down to the doctrine and way they structure their forces is a big way as well um and I think there's a few different things we need to look at in the way that they run it and the way that they have, one of the things is they have quite a hierarchical system. I mean, clearly all militaries are based around a command structure um, and we can both speak for you know, there's times when that's a necessity, um, but there's a level of control that's held within the Russian military that isn't seen in Western militaries. And actually thinking back to things I've learned previously, it reminds me a bit of the, the pressures that the French suffered in the previous world wars uh where you know the power was held so high and so tight it didn't provide the flexibility to move around at lower levels and to adapt to situations as they changed on the ground because no matter how well you plan that's not always going to accurately reflect what's happening yeah i know they they put um i was reading an article and they're saying the way um they will just at a large level what they probably call the operational level they would um approach a conflict you know, NATO Western armies will tend to um, have a high degree of flexibility. So the force package, you know, how what sort of ratios of artillery to infantry to tanks pretty much stays the same, whatever the operation is. But then they have a high degree of able to kind of plan and adapt the plan on the ground. So a lot, quite big headquarters that, um, you know, deployed headquarters that can make these plans. And then troops have a, a kind of culture of being able to like cross deck and, 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 and swap around quite easily. Whereas the the sort of traditional Soviet approach was very much more pre-planned and it was about um, small headquarters on the ground, not a huge ability to change the plan. But the plan was really quite like detailed beforehand. So a lot of effort was put into like the force structure, like getting exactly the right sort of troops you need for a specific operation. You know, do we need heavy, heavy amounts of artillery? Do we need heavy amounts of, um, you know, uh, light vehicles, et cetera, et cetera. And that's kind of um, as, as the as the war in Ukraine has has changed, um, perhaps the force structure they planned on conducting the war in the first place um, has has been left wanting, and maybe they, they they need more infantry, you know, than 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 they than they, they ex expected at the beginning. Yeah, and I think the other thing to touch back on is where you mentioned earlier about the different types of service personnel they have. 
with the professionals, the reserves, um, and the conscripts. Now, a lot of that means that you've got a huge number of people who are being brought into the fight that potentially aren't that well-trained and experienced. And remember that a lot of this came from them being deployed on a long exercise beforehand. And that's going to degrade people physically, but also morally as well. And that means you've got a fighting force that maybe aren't entirely sold on what they're doing. And that's going to lead to an uncommitted force. And actually, war fighting is somewhere where you don't want to have an uncommitted team delivering the effects that you want. Yeah, the, the war fatigue of the of the troops who have been fighting pretty high intensity conflict for the last you know since January of this year, um, with probably if they're struggling for forces, not any rotations back for leave and and rest and recovery, probably constantly at the fr- at the front. That psychological fatigue, um, beside before we even hit the casualties, is uh, is massive. I think it's worth just before we 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 talk slightly about the more human factors. Um, and Russia's approach to it is 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 actually that the way the Russian army traditionally mobilizes or or is, or is designed to mobilize is quite interesting. So if if you think the army is designed for a full mobilization, everything's designed around that. You've got this professional core which we've talked about already. Um, now, what the roles that they tend to fill is they won't tend to fill the the, what, the sort of rank and file infantrymen, you know, the grunt as the Americans might call it. Um, they'll be in more specialist roles because it's more, you know, the, the time invested in training. Um, it's much quicker to train an infantryman than it is to train, you know, a, spil- a, a skilled signal specialist or sk- artillery observer or um, even a vehicle driver. And if we look down to, um, let's use an example of a, a Russian, you know, armored personnel carrier, a tank that drives around some troops. You'll have in there um, some professional soldiers and also some conscripts in theory. You'll have, uh, you know, the, the guy driving the vehicle might be a professional soldier. The, uh, the, um, you know, the, the, the non-commissioned officer, the, the leader in charge of that group will be a professional soldier. But the guys in the back, you know, the eight infantrymen with a rifle in the back will be conscripts. Um, and the Russians are a, a hugely mechanized army as well. They've got large numbers of, of um, armored personnel carriers, and that's a legacy from the sort of Soviet doctrine um, back in the war, where they wanted to seize objectives quickly with these uh, these, these these fast mobile forces. Um, and so, what you saw coming into the conflict was these lots of armored vehicles, and we saw that huge siege train trundling to Kiev. But actually, a lot of the time, those vehicles didn't have the troops inside them that they needed to be effective. You know, they'd have the driver, they'd have the gunner, maybe, but the eight infantrymen in the back, who the, the whole purpose of that vehicle is to drive up to the target, get out, and then, uh, you know, and then clear it and seize it, it weren't there. So it's interesting in, in, in how that actually led to some of Russia's kind of failures early, early on and, 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 and increased the casualty rate is because... The, these vehicles weren't being employed properly, you know, and people were inclined to stay in their vehicles more so than then really the conflict the, the requirement needed them to do, which meant that you had all these vehicles getting picked off by the you know the Ukrainians with anti-tank weapons because they didn't have these conscripts in the back, um, and that all comes down to that whole you know it comes back to the politics. Why were the conscripts not there? Is because Putin wanted to very much sell it to his to the, to the people and to the world as this isn't an aggressive invasion. This is a special military operation of just our, a small portion of our armed forces. However, obviously, we've now reached a, a point where that that's that's changed. Matt, I don't know. You've seen some of the other methods that the Russians were using to prop up this infantry deficit. Wagner Group, um, kind of uh, militias from the Luhansk, Donetsk People's Republics. Whether you could chat about them. 
Yeah, so I, I think the the let's start with the militias because the Lacan's People's Republic and the next People's Republic, because they like self-identify, um, although clearly not recognised by the rest of the world. You know, those people are actually probably quite motivated fighters, and the other thing they have to their hand is that a lot of them will have been fighting in territory they're familiar with, and they've been fighting for a long time now. So you probably have quite an experienced group of fighters in those areas. And some of the other fighters that were brought up from Chechnya, for example, although not familiar with the train, probably quite experienced fighters who will perform quite well. And I think that's where the deficit comes from when we talk about the conscript armies who potentially have had, you know, as little as a month or a few months of training and now suddenly find themselves in a conflict against a very well-motivated defender uh, who's using the battle to their advantage, whereas Russia is just trying to play to its perceived strengths and not adapting. Uh, so those militias potentially, although not entirely professional forces, they might actually have a bit to them because of the experience they now carry. The Wagner Group's a very interesting conversation going down another line. Clearly we've seen them uh, acting across the world on behalf of Russia, and they're used almost as uh, an influence tool where they'll prop up governments, for example, in Mali, that are maybe straying away from the Western influence, trying to support liberalised governments. So and you're not aware, the, the Wagner Group are, are a mercenary group, um, a Russian mercenary group. However, you know, real kind of dotted line links to the Kremlin, um, and essentially seen as a, a means of sort of plausible de deniability for the Russians to have military operations, um, whilst you know not technically be involved in a country as much as Mali, Syria, etc. Yeah, exactly. And and the big thing is that, you know, if you're anywhere that has a military coup or a destabilised government, the West is not going to support that. The US arms policy, for example, they won't provide military aid at all to a country that's had a coup. And that's where Russia can use Wagner as almost an influence tool to support a government like that and gain influence around the globe. So they've gained a lot of experience in various military operations and their behaviour on the ground has been questionable, certainly not in line with the laws of armed conflict that we'd expect. Now, one of the things that's come out in the news recently is a video of the lead of the Wagner group in prisons recruiting prisoners um, and in, in quite an Crazy. aggressive fashion and the terms of this recruitment are harsh, but you know, it almost looks back to what you'd expect armies to be doing hundreds of years ago. Yeah, you only hear stories of the Navy going around London picking people off the streets to go on a ship and that's kind of what you see from them at the moment. So well, they used to call it the Navy, didn't they, in the, in the British Navy, the Royal Navy, the, the press ganging, you know, it was kind of people being essentially forced into service. And you see that again with this, this mobilisation, these people being forced onto buses. But yeah, well, that video is quite an interesting one if people haven't seen it, um, Matt. Uh, he's essentially saying to these prisoners, um, you know, we'll give you time off sentence or end your sentence if you sign these contracts. And this is, this is a really interesting theme. Um uh, there's been a term called sort of shadow mobilization and that actually you know there's not suddenly this great big step change in mobilization it's been going on already and uh, um you know people will be conscripts or reservists will be call called up for their normal training in russia and then they'll be offered a really juicy contract where we're going to give you you know uh a year's wages for a month's work but that month's work is fighting in ukraine and uh, you know in a lot of deprived areas of russia which th which there are some tends to be the sort of uh, the more eastern um parts of russia rather than the, the, the more european part um that's a really enticing 
device so a lot of these uh uh, conscripts who we wouldn't exp- who technically were you know as Putin said were not going to be involved in the war were were being made temporary permanent soldiers professional soldiers under these contracts um and and it's interesting and if, and if you look at some of the casualty statistics um they're vastly outweighed into Russia's poorer areas you know the uh, mm. the, the east um Siberia kind of parts of Russia had seen much harsher share of the casualties because they've got poorer people that have been uh, um recruited in for this um but yeah it seems the Wagner group are doing it as well with with prisoners now um you know uh and where and where this is the kind of army that you're creating this is why you're going to kind of lead to the things that we saw in Booker uh and more recently in areas in the east where there's a lot of war crimes torture uh going on and when you don't have a professional army, or at least you don't have enough supervision supervision from a professional army, and supposedly a high level of alcoholism, people that are there just because they're being paid a lot of money and aren't really invested in what they're doing, you know, that requires a really strong amount of leadership from the professional army to ensure that things don't go awry and the focus remains. And it's been very difficult to motivate and focus people that aren't interested in the overall goal of what Russia is trying to achieve. Yeah, that that role of military discipline, you know, and we're, we're talking about these scenes that look like something out of the 18th, 19th century, um, you know, where, when traditionally military discipline was seen as really harsh, you know, the, the British were, the, the French would look down on the British for, for whipping their own men, flogging their own men, whereas the British resolutely would stand by this behaviour and, and a lot of their belief was that... Um, um, especially when they, they were re- re- recruiting some, some people from, um, you know, all sorts of you know, recruiting people from prisons and things like that. There needed to be a, essentially this kind of really strict discipline in order to stop an army trending towards becoming rogue, committing the kind of crimes and not behaving in the way they want you to do. Um, because, you know, if history has told us anything is that armies will trend towards brutality if not put under control. You know, there's something in the human nature that, that they will trend towards that, especially if you're recruiting them out of a, you know, that they're drunk and they're out of a Russian prison camp. I can, Im- <laughs> I can imagine that's pretty extreme. Um, sh- so, should we talk a little bit about kind of, um, y- y- we talked about the background to mobilization, you know, what some of the shadow mobilization that's essentially been going on already with various different groups. Um, but. What are some of the difficulties? We, we talked about it briefly already in, in mobilizing 300,000 young Russian men to, to come and fight in this conflict. What, what, what would you think, Matt? I mean, the first challenge, I think we touched on it a little bit earlier, is just trying to co- coalesce these people, get them together in a place. It takes a lot of time and it takes also a huge amount of investment of people power to actually collect these people in. So that means you're drawing from other sources. Um, from what I understand the news, a lot of people that are doing it are the police. Um, you are then trying to just let these people in, get them to sign the papers. And that's just the first stage of what is actually going to be quite an extended time to get people into training. You then need to have the logistical management to transport everyone there. That's perhaps a little bit easier, especially if you can contract in private bus companies. You just need to tell people where to be when. But you also need someone to check that the right people are turning up at the right time. And then you've already started to get a bit of mission creep where you start to lose ones and twos. When you start to lose ones and twos off each bus, suddenly when you're trying to get 300,000 people together, you know, those ones and twos become thousands of people, but you've already lost 
before you've even got to the training camp. Um, and what you see in the news now is because people are concerned about shortfalls, you're seeing stories of, you know, PhD students, carers, for example, or people that have gone out to protest and have been arrested and are now being brought in for this uh, mobilization. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy, isn't it, to think that, I mean, if you just think at the highest level, let's think, you know, real kind of macroeconomics for a nation, we're suddenly going to take 300,000 working age people out of the workforce, you know, in a country that's got an aging population anyway, um, and we're going to take some of the young people out of the workforce. So like long term, pause, sorry, long term wise, you know, um, for a country that's having economic difficulties, this is certainly like a, a bit of a short a short term term solution. Um, I, I think it's interesting we talked earlier, Matt, about um, and I think this will link into some of some of these factors. The British military use a sort of uh, trifecta model when looking at what they call fighting power. You know, essentially the ability to to con- conduct war. Um, I know you've got you've got some thoughts on that, Matt. Yeah, so it's been broken down into three parts. You've got the moral, the physical, and the conceptual parts of fighting power. Um, the conceptual, you're very looking at the doctrine, how do we do it? Uh, the physical is, you know, your service personnel, their equipment. Um, and then the moral is ensuring that your army and your, the rest of your military is invested in what's doing and what's been doing is done correctly. Um, and this is a challenge when you're going for this mobilization of perhaps people that aren't prepared for going into a war and in a war where you've already lost a lot of equipment. Um, and in an oppressed society, perhaps you've got other challenges as well as that you don't quite realize what people are thinking when you bring them in. So let's just talk about a theoretical situation. You've got uh, a bunch of people that have turned up on a bus and they're beginning their training post-mobilization. Um, a lot of them are going to potentially be very unfit. You know, that's mm. one of the things you've got to consider. That's one of the things you've got to train up. Uh, you've got to equip them somehow. And this is where we're already seeing stories of equipment being spied that's damaged, rusty rifles. You, know, you can clearly see that they're already struggling with just equipping these people for training. And you don't know whether maybe perhaps once they move forward, they'll get better equipment. But it's difficult to know. The moral one is another very challenging one we're going to face. If you are enforcing people, uh, especially those who have protested against mobilization to go and serve, and perhaps, you know, they're elderly, they've got other jobs, they're looking to, towards retirement rather than thinking about anything else. You know, they just accepted the war because it wasn't impacting on their lives directly. And in such an oppressed society, you can't really take the risk of speaking out. When you start bringing these people in, they're going to have a toxic effect on what you want. And actually, no matter how much you apply uh, strict military discipline, not in the sense that you'd expect to see today in Western armies, perhaps you would have done more back at the turn of the last century to get people focused and working. There's only so much that's going to motivate people. And that means when you start sending these people away, you're going to start to see this toxic effect spread. And for, it'll be different reasons for different people. Some people you know, might be very morally against the war, some people just might not want to be there and are just there to take money so they're not going to be motivated to do anything, let alone put their lives on the line. And if you look at these reports of high levels of alcoholism amongst the people that are being picked up at the moment, you know, 
if that continues once people are deployed, you're not going to have an effective deployable force when you need to potentially put them into uh, situations that are going to be very mentally and physically challenging. When it comes under the pressure of that, you know, they're not going to have the conceptual part because they haven't had enough training to deal with those situations. So you're relying on their will and their perception of situations to deal with them, which they're just going to struggle with. Yeah, it puts even more strain when you know, these people are untrained on the more. And this is what's fascinating, is it? Like of the three components, um, the, the 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 slightly wishy washy, can't really put put your finger on exactly what it is. Human factors, i.e., the moral component, is is arguably the toughest one to get. You know, let's I mean, let's look at it uber simply. You know, a guy turns up, right? We give him a rifle and some some equipment. Cool, physical element nipped. You know, okay, we're now going to train him how to shoot that rifle um you know and how to live out in 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 the field and um cool you know conceptual component he now knows how to fight but that's all good and well but if he doesn't if he is not going to go and fight and he is not motivated to go and put his life at danger to, in order to seize objectives um which is essentially that you know that, that that requirement and to and to put those skills and those that equipment into action it's all it's all useless you know the the moral component um uh, and we've seen that in recent conflicts, haven't we? Uh, there was a lot of talk, I know, in the the kind of collapse of the Afghan uh, national security forces um, under the, the Taliban, and how quickly that happened. And that people were saying, well, they've got all this equipment, they've got, in theory, all these all these people. Um, you know, obviously, it's quite a complicated factor. Example there with a lot of uh, uh, poor reporting of, of statistics. But let's let's keep it simple. That motivation to fight uh perhaps wasn't there as strongly as their opponents you know um and we look at that in the, in the as the whole theme of the ukraine war so far you've got the ukrainians who really genuinely feel like they're defending their homeland and are willing to give up their lives and will fight to the bitter end for it versus a force who initially didn't didn't even know what they were doing didn't know why they were there turning into a force that's perhaps something that um you know knows what's going on but that perhaps doesn't want to be there and doesn't feel that um, motivated about the conflict, um, and I think that, that that's a really interesting one to to go into of, of of how on earth would you build up um, that kind of that 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 moral factor. We... Okay, so we're going to use that um, three components: the fighting power, the uh, physical, conceptual, moral, as a little bit of a, um, a framework. And then we're going to go through some of the issues that we that we know the Russians are having or are, are likely to have um, from what we've seen so far in in in, uh, in reporting. Um, starting off with the the physical side, so the sort of manpower and and equipment. Um, yeah, I don't know whether you, you've seen some stuff, Matt, or yeah. So um, let's talk a bit about the Russians' losses they've suffered so far in this conflict. Um, there's a lot more kind of open source information available about that than the Ukrainian losses. So it's a little bit difficult to do a comparison. Uh, so I'm just going to focus on the Russian side. Now, bear in mind that the Russians initially went in with a force of around 190,000 personnel, and now they're looking at increasing an additional 300,000, which is huge, as we discussed a little bit earlier in the call. Now, up until recently, Russians had only given one up update on the losses that suffered since the start of the conflict. There was originally somewhere around the figure of 1,600. Um, but recently, um, at the time of the announcement about mobilization, we have now admitted that Russian losses sit at 5,937, um, which, you know, 
broadly given the length and the size of the conflict, the numbers of personnel involved wouldn't seem too bad. However, compared to other sources of information, that is far smaller. And I'm sure you'd agree that it seems unlikely that a figure of just under 6,000 is believable. So the UK government have put out a fiver of 25,000 casualties, but that's not including injured. That's purely those that have died. Um, the Ukrainian government is saying 44,500. And the US is saying total casualties, so both deaths and injuries, is coming out at about 80,000 personnel, which is huge numbers because you know that's not too far off of half. It's almost a third and a half of their initial force has been destroyed, which is you know unprecedented damage to an offensive force. Yeah, and interesting is some of those disparities in, in casualty statistics. Obviously, that a lot of them are self-reported, um, but also the. Um... Uh, if you look at what the Russians have used, especially for some of the more the, the more dangerous parts of the operation, the more casualty-heavy parts of the operation, they've been using um, a lot of troops from, we mentioned earlier, the militia sort of forces from the D Donetsk, Luhansk region, which they don't have to essentially report in their own casualty stats because they're sort of technically another country. You know, these mercenary groups, Wagner, etc. Um, so there's been a lot of kind of like um, steps taken to kind of conceal the, uh, the the scale of the casualties even from their own systems um, yeah and i think that's a really good point because you don't actually know in that initial force of 190,000 that was reported you know who did that actually include was that purely the russian forces or because at the same time the belarusians were uh, exercising as well um but clearly they aren't supposed to have been involved in the war at all um but as you said the mercenaries and then the militia groups as well and it shows also that you know the Russians obviously aware that um, it's a sensitive topic. You know, uh, Russian young men being killed, um, they know the the negative effect that, that could have on on the on the population. You know, seeing their their, their sons and uh, uh, brothers potentially potentially being being killed, you know, um, leads to a, a loss of faith potentially on the home front, um, which is maybe what they the the real critical thing that could go wrong for them. Yeah, and especially where, you know, if you've got the government style that is relying on the head power figure being so strong, if he's led in a conflict that's using a huge amount of people, more than they lost in 10 years when they invaded Afghanistan, that is going to have an effect, no matter how strong the support is and no matter how oppressed the people are. No one wants to see large numbers of people from their country going to war over something they're uncertain about and dying yeah no definitely um and then it, the, the other question is like even if we get these numbers we get these people turning up you know where on earth do you get the equipment where on earth do you get the clothing the weapons the uh you know the, the, the radios the night vision equipment all the kind of um elements that go into equipping a modern day soldier where on earth do you get them from yeah, and you know, again, where Ukraine has so much support from the outside, Russia is struggling with that because a lot of its closer allies aren't leaning in because they're aware about the impact it could have on them. So let's talk about that, the equipment losses they've had. Now, these stats I'm going to give you are focused on, you know, large items, vehicles, aircraft. Um, we're not considering, as you said, rifles, ammunition, uh, first aid kit, signal equipment, all of those little bits that you need to equip the man, just manning the equipment. Um, so Ukraine reported these figures. 
Uh, so they've reported uh, 10,000 roughly vehicles and vehicles that have been destroyed, captured, etc. Uh, 1,200 aircraft, mostly helicopters, some planes. Um, but that doesn't include a further 190 cruise missiles they've shot down. Uh, they also claim to have destroyed or captured uh, 15 vessels at sea. Now, to compare that, because you, know, you don't actually believe that, that well, that's been exaggerated in what, um, independently verified from sort of called Oryx, um, that I've seen other uh, analysis channels use, uh, they've reported almost six and a half thousand land vehicles, uh, 229 aircraft and 10 vessels at sea. Now, bear in mind that if they're independently verifying then, uh, that's going to mean that probably that's a low figure and you're going to expect a higher figure than that. Um, so probably somewhere in between those two sets of numbers is realistic, which is huge. And you've also got a question like which vehicles, you know, you see the Russian balance sheet of uh, the number of, uh, uh, you know, equipment that they, they in theory have on, um, you know, on strength and it's massive, it's scary, but the war has really highlighted to people that, God, well, a lot of that is, you know, rows and rows of old T-50, T-56 tanks, you know, really old sort of Cold War tanks um, sitting rusting in, in Siberia. They, yeah, they might technically be be tanks on strength, but how usable are they? And actually, what is it, these losses? They haven't necessarily been to those vehicles. They've been to maybe some of their their prize vehicles, some of their really like top tier useful stuff. Um, so it's not even like they've lost some of the the low tier equipment, and they've got some of the high tier in reserve. Potentially, they've had losses in some of their more useful equipment because we know that equipment support and the ability to repair vehicles was uh, a real issue for them early on. So it's likely it was probably the newer vehicles that were going in to do a lot of this hard fighting and and getting destroyed. And even in a manpower sense, you know, uh, w w there's obviously the stories early on in the uh, conflict of the, of the Verde Ve, the, the Russian airborne forces um, suffering really high casualties in the first few days of the war. Uh, um, you know, the, uh, and that is what an example of one of those uh, Russian units that is made up of, of, of professional soldiers, made up of their best. So how much of these casualties have been suffered in some of Russia's elite forces and some of their best vehicles, um, I think would be a really interesting factor. And now what, you know, what is that, what is that, that where do we get equipment now? Um, you know, because these things take, you can't just turn a, t turn a, turn a tank off a factory line, you know, with the click of a button. These things take months, maybe years to put in place. Um, and in months and, may, and may, maybe years, the, the conflict could be over. So I, I think really what we're going to see is the, this conscript force being equipped with legacy, really old Soviet equipment. Um, you know, if it hasn't already been sold off, everyone's seen the film War Dogs, haven't they? You know, the, the huge amount of that at the fall of the Soviet Union, a lack of accountancy, the accountant, you know, the rigid accountancy of the Soviet system w was lost overnight when it collapsed, and um, a lot of this stuff disappeared. So where they're going to find this equipment is going to be. Um, really, really interesting, and what kind of quality equipment is going to be handed out? Yeah, and, and it's interesting about the loss of equipment because Russia has routinely scored so lowly internationally for corruption. Um, and in your country like that, you're going to strip. You're going to find that all of these parts have been stripped and sold either to other nations or misused. And that's not going to help when you're trying to really build up a well, much larger force than you had in the first place. Um, and the war production point you made, again, really interesting. So uh, Russia's biggest defense equipment supplier, uh, it's 
personnel that work for them are no longer allowed to go on leave and there's a 24-hour production uh, line on. But how much can that actually turn out, especially when you're missing a lot of key supplies like chips coming from the West? That's really going to slow things down and limit what you can deliver. Um, and the, the other thing to go back on is, you know, those losses, the stats that I mentioned, you know, they, that was taken during the time that that huge advance that just happened in the Kharkiv region was ongoing. So if you consider that that's going to go up a lot, especially where I've seen reports from multiple places that, um, and this is a very ad hoc quote, but supposedly Russia has become the second or third biggest supplier of military equipment to Ukraine because they lost so much in advance. That's going to take a big hit. It's also going to bolster Ukraine a huge amount. Um, and I, I think it, you know, there's a lot of um, parity in the flaws that I see from the Russo-Rogo war of 2008. Um, you know, again, Russia was clearly very well prepared for this conflict in the background. And yet they still made a huge number of mistakes. And a lot of that came down to, you know, the morale of people, but also more important, the equipment. They had huge failings in signals. They weren't effectively suppressing air defense or artillery. Uh, they had massive chains of vehicles breaking down, running out of fuel. Uh, and a lot of that hasn't really changed and hasn't been worked on this conflict. So when you've already had kind of two bites at the apple trying to invade Ukraine, and now you're sending in a third force that's from a severely, severely depleted professional army with a lot of mobilized conscripts and reservists who perhaps aren't as motivated to be there and aren't as well trained or equipped. You know, how much of an effect is this going to have when the Western support for Ukraine has built up quite an effectively trained army who are well equipped and well supported? Yeah, I mean, what, what an awesome transition into, you know, the, the sort of second component of the conceptual, you know, we might, even if we've got the stuff, how do we fight? You know, war isn't just like a, a, a 1950s war movie where you just charge the machine gun less yelling, yeah, and, you know, that's, that's how you win. You know, it, it, it's a relatively kind of complicated science of a lot of coordination between different um, different aspects. And that coordination, you know, um, what they sort of term combined arms warfare, you know, the ability to put tanks, infantry, artillery, engineers and other aspects onto a onto a position uh, simultaneously is quite hard to achieve. And even, you know, professional NATO armies find find that that, that a, a difficult skill to achieve. Um, and, and we've seen that even in the conflict so far before they've brought in these conscript forces an inability that you know let, let's look at a basic example you know you want your artillery to hit your enemy position and then immediately you want that to be followed up by not just tanks on their own not just infantry on their own but tanks and infantry together um, with perhaps some engineers in there to be able to to get them onto the position um, we, we've not seen that at all we've seen massive artillery strikes but then a, a huge delay before maybe some of these tanks turn up without infantry support um you know for for our, our, our listeners who are perhaps less familiar you'd think why, why do you need infantry if you've got a tank surely it's better but fundamentally you know a, a tank is really good at going up against uh hardened perhaps more singular positions you know it's got great armor it's got a great uh, weapon on it um but if it, it's vulnerable to, to small dismounted light infantry you know with anti-tank weapons as, we, as we've seen because it just can't see you know you've got a couple of guys in there trying to look out through small little hatches it just hasn't got the vision of you know a 30-man infantry platoon 
you've got 30 pairs of eyes all able to look around and see stuff so the, the two kind of complement each other quite quite nicely or, or have so and the russians have had real difficulty with that um and you know are they going to have even more difficulty with 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 fighting that that style of 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 warfare which is probably going to lead them to to be behave more um attritionally with those troops and send mass mass light infantry charges um which is again going to hit the casualty rate even even further and then the basic level of you know let's let's go to the the real simplistic level of how do you train these infantrymen you know you've given someone a rifle well that doesn't mean they're going to be able to hit a target um and uh, an an interesting and, and worrying for the russian side of, of reports i've seen is that one of the shadow mobilization techniques they were using to bring more troops into the conflict was to take a lot of their training uh, kind of cadre, their training instructors, their real experienced guys, and bring them in to be frontline infantry. Um, interesting, the Russians have a system where rather than in NATO countries where you tend to have centralized training kind of centers where everyone will go to that and then bounce out to their sort of working teams, their working units, um, they'll tend to do it in unit, in house. Um, the rationale being, you know, Russia is a huge country. You know, it's it's difficult to to gather people together, um, and so they'll tend to have a, a proportion of every unit who are the dedicated training instructors. Uh, and I was looking at the moment, like those have been a lot of those have been drafted into fight already. So who are the people that are going to train up these conscripts? Um, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a really real tough problem for them them to overcome. Yeah, and then as you get more and more people reaching the frontline forces, you've had perhaps limited or compromised training as they are then there for longer they become the greater proportion of those there you have less of professional soldiers which means that when newer people are turning up their influence is going to come from those who don't have that same level of training or experience and that's where you're going to start to get this leaching through the force of not just perhaps toxic behaviors and activities but a lack of professionality that will lead to significant losses and difficulty achieving the objective. And one of the things that was talked about quite widely in the Kharkiv offensive that's just happened was not just the fact that the Russians weakened their front there to support the Kherson region, but was also the fact that the troops that they left there were the ones that weren't particularly competent. And this is why they so often folded so quickly and being able to just allow the ukrainian forces to strike through and cut them off and it doesn't matter how many people you put on the ground if you have a weak force where gaps can be exploited and they become cut off they're not going to be robust enough to withstand the pressure that we put on and are likely to surrender and fold yeah and, and that's the classic thing that you know I, uh, before i sort of read into this thing you might think that warfare is all about it's all about sort of killing the enemy you know you win through killing all of their people the reality is the vast majority of of, of people are going to surrender or retreat uh before they before that before that before they're killed you know um so that morale factor is even even more important someone's probably going to run away before they'll, they'll stand in place and, and be killed so yeah you, when you come up against a force that's not prepared to fight and not prepared to stand its ground um you know you, you can quickly have a rout on your hands um and that's how you'll lose the battle you know not through all of all, the, all of those guys getting killed um yeah it's fascinating and again brings us on to that that moral factor the last factor being the most important one which is you know so difficult to get so multifaceted 
you know and if you think the original soviet concept or the original russian army concept for deployment is that you would get a lot of that morale from the tough ncos the professional ncos um that uh, conscripts would join a unit to fight with um you know the, the section commanders in charge of a, a team of eight guys um but those guys are already committed to the fight or potentially killed already or wounded um and so that that backbone of the of the non-commissioned officer that kind of holds together a fighting army um it, 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 they're gonna they're gonna struggle to do that and they're gonna have to promote people out of these conscripts already now who do they promote do they promote the most brutal character within the group uh you know history would probably suggest that they might do and then we're going to see even more of the kind of um pretty atrocious behavior by by russian troops um which is if it's you know potentially going to turn you know uh, ukrainians even even further against the war if they weren't you know as extremely turned against it already um, yeah. yeah and let's talk about another potential employment for them because it has been discussed that actually what might happen is they push the remainder of their professional forces forward to the front which would in some ways make sense gives the time for the newly mobilized force to develop a little pick up some uh, smaller pressure situations and gain some experience so let's say they're employed you know as logistical drivers or uh, security in the rear echelons you know much more simple uh, roles that require probably a lower level experience but when you're then considering that you know, the enemy's going to look to exploit those areas. And they've been doing that very effectively with high Mars. I think we've all seen the footage of Russian ammo depots being destroyed at distance. But a lot of that comes from intelligence collection um, or exploitation by small parties on the ground first. And actually, if you've got an inexperienced force who are relatively unsupervised um, and unmotivated, it's going to become even easier for the Ukrainians to exploit the Russian. And if you can't support your fighting force, with the resources that they need it doesn't matter how effective equipment is how professional your force is they just can't fight because they don't have the material to be able to do that yeah no i, I think that the, the logistical burden that it creates is is yeah it's, it's fascinating and often all, especially you know if you put it right down to real sim simplicity you know war's got kind of two ways it's going to go it's either going to be fast fluid mobile you know the blitzkrieg of the 1939-1940 being the classic world war ii example um where actually you know macro level economics and, and local level logistics aren't as important um but the moment something starts to take a, a little bit more time you know economics and logistics take over um and so some of the the long-term effects of, of of all of this and this war has you know has, has clearly failed to seize its initial rapid objectives and has become a war of, of attrition essentially um so it'd be really interesting to think about like um lastly to we've talked about some of the difficulties what the effect of let's say they're able to mobilize at least a decent proportion of these three hundred thousand troops and, and and get them to the front what kind of effect that might 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 have on on the war um and potentially i know matt you've got some interesting thoughts about maybe actually the russians motivations isn't just about filling manpower um and, and there's maybe a different a different reason for it yeah so i, I think let's touch on what are the conventional thought is first that they are just trying to expand their force allow them to hold ground better to free up some forces to advance forward because that's their main goal isn't it the stated goal but the objective of the special military operation is to secure the Donbass, which actually so far 
they've been quite unsuccessful in. And I think, you know, most of the analysis conducted in the first stage of the war, where you also had the advance towards Kiev, was actually, you know, this secondary uh, approach that's happened to secure the Donbass is a bit of a misleading thing. There was a very clear option. They were trying to take the capital and overthrow the government. Um, so, yeah, I think what they're clearly going to try and do is to save face. If they're going to look to secure the Donbass with these troops, you know, as you bring in more people, even with the weaknesses that this force will clearly have, it will make a difference and it will free up some more of those professional fighters to move elsewhere. Um, and then it will just be interesting to see is, you know, how far do they keep pushing? If they are very successful, what do they do? Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I, I, think, I think you've nailed it there. You know, the safest option to use these troops is, is ground halting. You know, not a lot. You know, you just sit here in this trench with your rifle, get fed, and, uh, you know, if there's enough of you, um, defence is, is, is probably a fair bit easier than, than a, an attack. And whether they'll uh, be buoyed by that success to, to try new, fresh war aims, or whether they'll look to consolidate, you know, because there's a lot of talk on the, certainly on the international politics um uh, sort of geopolitics stream is that well maybe actually you know <laughs> globally um although, although it might be morally questionable um from a sort of um a um utilitarian approach the russians need to achieve some of their war aims you know they to, to save face and, and to prevent them them acting in more rashly and that seizure and, and, and holding of the donbass um could be that that war aim that kind of gives them that, that get out of jail jail free so they they can say back to their own people look it was it was all worth it we've we've achieved something um whether that's actually realistic we, we don't know um but matt you've got a really interesting thought about um potentially this troop movement being used as a, as, as an, another kind of international politics negotiating tool yes and i, I would like to kind of preempt this by saying is it is quite an outside thought and i don't think it's particularly likely but it is plausible because actually We've misjudged a lot of what Putin may or may not do um, in the run-up to this war and during this war, and there's still a lot of uncertainty about what he might do vis-a-vis -vis, you know, his threats to use uh, nuclear weapons. So interestingly, uh, the day before all of these announcements about mobilization starts to come out, uh, Putin had a meeting with President Erdogan from Turkey, uh, and he said, sorry, President Erdogan, like he said, following the following uh, that in the press conference, that President Putin was actually willing to consider ending the war and was willing to negotiate. Now, at this current point in time, Russia's very much on the back foot. It's got 20,000 troops trapped in um, the Kherson region with Ukrainian forces slowly advancing. Uh, it's lost a huge amount of territory in the east and it's very much being on the back foot and we're all very much aware that it's going to take time to get these huge numbers that he's promising into the fight if they even can secure those forces so one of the things that i considered was perhaps actually this is somewhat a bluff in the way that ukraine know no matter how good this force comes in three hundred thousand troops in the war would make a huge difference and will have an effect on the battle uh, so what if Russia realizes there's a chance they can't secure this force or can't bring it into any real means of effect on the ground? And they're using this to buff up their negotiating position to end the war. Because, you know, no matter how well you consider that Ukraine's in a great place and this force probably isn't going to be that effective, 
it's going to weigh on your mind. Uh, Stalin once said, uh, quantity is a quality of its own. And he has a very good point. 300,000 is a lot of people. And that is certainly going to bolster Russia's negotiating position going into any negotiations to end this war. Matt, I think I think that's great analysis. You know, as you say, in the world of geopolitics, um, especially with a, a country like Russia that's quite closed in a lot of its its communications, um, it is difficult to tell. Everybody's kind of guessing and trying to predict things. Um, I, I think that that's pretty reasonable logic, though. You know, um, it's potentially a way a way to maybe have the for, for the Russians to have a little bit of the best of both. Have the have the um, you know the effect of the three hundred thousand without actually having to kind of equip these things because as we've discussed already through this podcast you know it feels like there's a huge numbers of barriers to it and and and, and how realistic it is uh is is pretty is pretty questionable um so yeah uh, i'm but you know it is it, a fast it's a fascinating subject to look at um i think with that we'll, we'll sort of draw the podcast to a bit of a bit of a close you know um again just a few kind of rambling thoughts from me and matt and um, we're by no means experts in this subject but we certainly take a, a real interest in it and, and and have read um relatively widely and, and followed the conflict since it began and, and, and actually probably before it began um and probably introduce hopefully for you guys as the listeners some slightly some slight themes that maybe you hadn't considered about this mobilization that it's not a simple case of um you know a load of nice shiny troops turning up um, when russia presses a button um, what's driven it in the first place you know why is it they need the, the, these troops why can't they just do it with what they've got already um and, and potentially some, maybe some of the the end goal motivations that matt talks about at the end on the on the international world stage so really i, I suppose it's just a, to, to, to really um look forward and and, and see what's gonna see what's gonna happen with this this conflict um hopefully you know it, it will end soon it's it's been a pretty horrendous cost um in, in terms of the human and environmental impact um um for for the the region and the world so hopefully it'll be something that will come to an end end soon um and uh and, and we'll be able to talk about some some more positive things for for the region but thank you matt first time joining us on the podcast uh hope you enjoyed it yeah thank you for having me on it was really good really good to catch up no i think it was a really great, great chat this week and i hope you guys enjoyed it and, and you guys will look forward to having matt on a few more episodes talking about some sort of similar subjects Okay, we have been Things We Find Interesting. Um, catch us up on Instagram um, or on our, our, our Spotify or Apple podcasts page um, for a few more episodes. Brilliant. Thank you.